Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dare to Use the F Word podcast. We're bringing you stories about how millennial feminists are taking their ideas out into the community. My name is Amrita Doshi, and I'm here today co-hosting with Emma Schuster. We both work as research assistants at the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Dare to Use the F Word is a production of Barnard College and the Barnard Center for Research on Women. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Caritas Doha. She's a fellow from Sucky for South Asian Women here in New York City. Sucky means woman friend in Sanskrit. The organization focuses on providing services and advocacy for South Asian women who have been in situations of domestic and gender-based physical, economic, and emotional abuse. They field about 2,000 calls a year and serve women from all five boroughs of New York City. The women they work with come from a range of ages, religions, economic backgrounds, and immigration statuses. Sucky's getting ready to celebrate 25 years of breaking silence and building communities of support. Whether a woman is looking for friendship amongst other survivors, a stable job, or needs legal representation, Sucky provides all these services and more. This unique support system between staff and clients is formed from a shared understanding of South Asian language and culture. The South Asian countries that Sucky serves are Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and the South Asian diaspora. So I've been interning at Sucky since January 2014. Just around the time that we planned to do this podcast, Saki hired a new fellow, Karita Stoha. I had the opportunity of talking to Karita about her work and knew I immediately wanted to feature it in the podcast. She was born in Bangladesh but raised in New York City, and she first learned about Saki when she sought out legal help for her mom. So she was brought on by Saki to help them build an initiative to increase the number of young South Asian women applying for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. Basically, what DACA does is it provides temporary relief from deportation for about two years and gives undocumented youth some of the opportunities that we have, like getting a driver's license or getting a worker's permit. I started this conversation by asking Caritas how she first learned about Saki's work. Saki and I have, at this point, a pretty long history. I first found out about them because they helped my mom as a survivor of domestic violence and then soon moved on through becoming a volunteer, a researcher, working in direct services, and then they finally hired me. So you said your mom was a survivor of domestic violence. Can you tell me a little bit more about how she started working with Saki? When I was in college, I just moved in with my mom and her second husband, and he uh, turned pretty abusive um, soon soon after I got there. And um, so my mom clearly needed him to stop but didn't really have the right tools or know how. Um, and so I you know, started helping her through filing for orders of um, protection or police reports and and calling and all these things to try and, you know, legal channels to try and get him to stop being so abusive. Um, and one day we went to court and I asked for my mom to have a court interpreter because um, while I was comfortable navigating the court system myself, although it was a, a lot of pressure, um, and and kind of scary since I was responsible for our well-being all of a sudden. Um, I knew that if my mom 
although she could speak English and understood English and can communicate fine, I realized it would probably be more comfortable for her to have someone that spoke in her native tongue. And so the court interpreter um, was affiliated with Saki or maybe had been trained by Saki, I'm not sure, but she told my mom and me about this program that helps South Asian women who are victims of domestic violence. And so that was a a huge relief to me because here was this entire organization predicated on helping people like my mom out. And I didn't have anything like that before. The only person I knew that could help my mom was me. Um, And once my mom called them, she was put in touch with an advocate who would end up supporting her through um, the rest of the court filings and um, things like getting a job or filling out a resume, ESL classes. These are all things like programs that Saki has that my mom has been involved in. So um, I know you're currently a fellow at Saki. So can you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing right now? Sure. I was brought on um, as a fellow to help um, build a new initiative for um, helping South Asian women apply for deferred action for childhood arrivals. I'm pretty sure I was brought on because I already have a history with them and because I happen to be a South Asian woman applying for deferred action for childhood arrivals. So Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals was um, an executive order that President Obama made on June 15th of 2012. And it gives uh, work authorization and protects you from the threat of deportation, protects the beneficiaries from the threat of deportation for two years and is renewable. The people who are eligible came to America when they were children. So there are five, five requirements. Uh, you had to have come before the age of 16, younger than 31 on June 15th of 2012, lived continuously in the U.S. since 2007, um, are currently in school, have a high school diploma or a GED, and have no significant criminal record, and there's a $465 application fee. Okay, can you just give us a little background and um, on your personal story about how you found out about DACA, how you found out you were undocumented, and, and where that's taken you now? I arrived in the U.S. when I was two. I came with my mom and dad um, on a business visa that eventually expired. And at the time, I guess this was 91, 92, uh, because I was so young, I was included in my mother's passport. I was included with my, like, household nickname and not my legal name. I found out I was undocumented when I was in high school and applying for colleges. And I found out that I didn't have a social security number. And then I found out that I didn't have anything that qualifies as ID in America. This immediately limited my college options. And the only places that I could apply to were CUNY schools. Who And CUNY schools don't care about your legal status. Um, you just have to sign an affidavit saying that you are trying to um, adjust your status. And so I was able to do that. But 
then I couldn't have any uh, student loans or financial aid because FAFSA requires a social security number, which I didn't have. And most scholarships require some sort of status. And so I had to be creative and I was lucky enough to find a fellowship that didn't care about my status. I then had the problem of paying for my books because I couldn't work. And so then I had to be really creative about what types of places I could get a job in service industry in New York. Um, so I was able to like work late hours in cash jobs where I had very little security and I didn't know whether I'd have it the next week. Um, so that was extremely stressful um, to not know what your future was going to be like. And so it's extremely disheartening and it's depressing to be very honest. Um, uh, health insurance is another thing. I found out that I had to go to the emergency room once and that was awful. I think I'm pretty sure I'm still paying that off. <laughs> um, but and then there are certain services in New York, right? So I found out that I could get like some services from Planned Parenthood and some services from Beth Israel or so it, it takes a lot of finding out the resources that are available to you. And so that's one of the goals of this project is to have all of that ready for someone um, so that you don't have to spend the time that I spent freaking out about what am I going to do next, that it's hopefully provided for you so you can have that ease of mind. I can't, couldn't travel. Flying, even though undocumented students can fly in the continental U.S., it's terrifying. Every time I handed over my passport, and Bengali passports are handwritten. Like there are, you know, a lot of it is typed, but the fields that are your name, your date of birth, are handwritten. My picture is practically taped into it. Um, so it's for a place like America that has like all sorts of security things on their identification, it looks so not legitimate, despite it being the identification of my country. So it's nerve wracking presenting that at any point to anyone, even if I'm entering a bar. Um, and so that's a problem that I think is faced by a lot of South Asian applicants as opposed to other countries that have more official looking documents. A lot of places have handwritten, for instance, my birth certificate didn't even have my name on it. Um, so that was a huge problem to prove that I am who I say I am. Um, and, and the lawyers that I've talked to have said that, yeah, they, you know, they see this especially with applicants from Bangladesh. And so that's why there's a need for culture, you know, South Asian specific, um, a, a South Asian specific initiative. What are some of the barriers that South Asian women or the South Asian community in general are facing? Like, why aren't they applying for DACA? From what I'm learning, there are a few major reasons. One is just access to information. 
there hasn't been enough outreach in the South Asian community, whether through media outlets like language-specific channels or flyers or community um, institutions. Um, There hasn't been enough things translated into languages like Bengali or Urdu or any of the South Asian languages. Another barrier is fear because ultimately it requires a certain amount of trust in the government to hand over so much information USCIS has done a has pledged to not use that information for deportation reasons. Um, so I think that's a message that needs to be repeated. And the third one, which is no small one, is a financial barrier. Um, Four hundred sixty-five dollars is a lot of money, and you're talking about people who do not have the right to work yet. So saving up for for the application fee is takes a lot of time. And you have to do it every two years. And some families have multiple children. So if you have three kids, that's already almost $1,500. That's a significant amount of money. So can you expand on some of the short-term benefits and some of the long-term benefits for people in general applying to DACA and for the South Asian women that you are targeting? For South Asian women in particular, all for each item of documentation that DACA gives you, it's one more dimension of agency that you have. So a driver's license gives you mobility and identification. A bank account allows you to have something, savings in your own name to build up credit. Being able to secure a job is definitely economic empowerment being able to apply for schools uh, is also empowerment education. So so the more empowerment they have in those senses, the less susceptible they are to domestic violence because they're becoming less vulnerable. And sometimes you have women in the South Asian community who have to get married in order to secure legal status or in some way are beholden to someone else. And DACA in New York, it's a protection against that type of vulnerability to someone else. One of the effects that'll happen after these first, after the first round of people that I work with, right? Each person that gets approved becomes a walking ambassador because everyone else will see all of the benefits associated with having that approval. And how that there are no negative effects. And as someone, maybe after you've gone through the process and gotten your approval, what's something you hope to kind of impart? Part of my goal is to make this immigration application, which is like an incredibly dehumanizing thing and process some and bring a much more like holistic and humane approach to it. If there's one thing that I've learned from starting to work on this program is that my experience matters and my voice matters. There are other people who have also been through the same thing that might not yet be ready to talk about it. I wasn't for a very long time about a lot of the things I'm coming out about now, being undocumented, being a child who's seen domestic violence, going through mental health issues, um, 
all sorts of things that are hard to talk about. And so hopefully, like, it's gotten me very interested and motivated in advocacy in getting rid of silence in a lot of areas through talking about personal experience because I think I've been told to be silent for a very long time and so like raging against against that right now I think. Karita Stoha is a fellow at Sucky for South Asian Women here in New York City. As a writer, storyteller, and activist, she is creating a movement in her community. You can follow her story and work on Twitter at Documenting Dreams or on her blog, Documenting Dreams, on Sucky's website, where she's sharing her story with us in a five-part series. South Asians happen to be one of the fastest-growing immigrant populations in New York City. Sucky has led the way not only in providing services for survivors of sexual and domestic abuse, but is now standing at the forefront in empowering and educating the South Asian community as a whole. Caritas, along with the rest of Sucky, hopes to take a unique, holistic approach to DACA applications through breaking the silence and mentorship. Thank you to Caritas Doha for sharing her story with us. Thanks also to composer Ebony Smith for our new theme song, Rebecca Lee Douglas, the executive producer of the show, and Nietzsche Yin, BCRW fellow. Check out more podcast episodes at the BCRW's website at bcrw.barnard.edu or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Send your questions, comments, and ideas for future shows to bcrw at barnard.edu. That's all we have for you today, but we'd like to leave you with the dare. Use the F word. <laughs> I think it was good. <laughs>